What's up, co-maniacs? If you're listening to the sound of our voices right now, it means that you have probably noticed that the first episode of Road Agents showed up unannounced in your co-main event podcast feed. This was not an accident, nor will it happen again, so don't don't worry, don't don't get flustered. Ben and I just thought maybe we'd give you a little glimpse behind the curtain as to what's happening with the Road Agents over there on the Co-Main Event Podcast Patreon. We want you to enjoy this free sample, and if you like what you hear, maybe you can uh, head over there to the Patreon and uh, sign yourself up to hear future episodes of Road Agents. Don't miss it. We got them WMDs. Got them WMDs. Hello, and welcome to Road Agents, the Deadwood Rewatch podcast. I'm Chad Dundas, sitting alongside my longtime colleague Ben Folks. And if you don't know already, we are here to rewatch and discuss, unravel and unpack, celebrate and scrutinize one of our favorite television shows of all time, David Milch and HBO's Western epic Deadwood, a towering achievement in what we've come to think about as prestige TV and a show that ran for a regrettably brief three seasons from 2004 to 2006. Ben, are you ready to do this? Well, thank you, Chad, for that most eloquent fucking introduction. And yes, in answer to what I expect will be your stupid fucking cocksucker question, this is the diction that I plan to speak with throughout this entire fucking project, you timber-dicked cocksucking hooplehead. Why are you laughing? <laughs> wow, I mean that was pretty good. Okay, I'm not. I'm. I'm gonna drop that right now. I can't like, keep that up. It seemed like you ad libbed that. I, I thought about it a little in the shower, but uh, yeah. Other than that, uh, I'm pretty excited, as you can tell, because I'm pretty excited about Deadwood, and yeah. there's a whole lot to discuss here. And I think that uh, this is one of those shows where we agree that it was actually. Super fucking awesome. Maybe still one of the best TV shows I've ever seen. So I'm excited for us to get a chance here to discuss actually what makes it good, both from a just scene-by-scene character world-building kind of sense and the greater themes and historical context. Well, if you couldn't tell from Ben's soliloquy right there, Those of you who've been listening to us for a long time probably know that this is something of an experiment for us. We're going outside our comfort zone to do this podcast, though we ultimately think that the subject matter here will end up appealing to a large portion of our audience, especially those of us uh, who've joined, those of you who've joined us for previous book club episodes and, and who have chosen to support the Patreon at the highest level. We're super happy that you guys have decided to join us for this show, which will no doubt grow and change and evolve over the course of 18-ish episodes. So we hope that you guys will continue to support and interact with this show uh, and maybe bear with us a little bit, I don't know, as we work out some of the kinks. Basically, Ben, with the long-rumored Deadwood movie finally becoming a reality, and I believe either just now filming or just having wrapped filming as we record this, we thought that, frankly, the time was now if we wanted to pull off the Deadwood rewatch uh, podcast So we are going to plunge into this thing and uh, react to any news about this upcoming Deadwood follow-up movie as it emerges more or less in real time. 
Uh, given that this is the first episode of the series, I think that the run of play here might be a little bit different than what we will end up doing for future episodes. Basically, though, we're going to try to move through the series uh, two episodes at a time, two episodes per podcast. We'll see if that holds up as we move forward. Uh, on this episode, though, we are going to do some things by way of introduction. First of all, this is probably self-explanatory, but spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about stuff that happens on Deadwood. So if you haven't listened to episode, or if you haven't watched episode one, the uh, pilot episode of Deadwood, which I believe is called Deadwood, and if you haven't watched episode two, Deep Water, we're going to be talking about those two episodes today on the show. So if you want to watch those before you listen to this, you should absolutely do that because we're going to tell you what happens. Now, Ben, to start off, I wanted to ask you, you spoke to this a little bit a minute ago, but it's been 15 years since Deadwood debuted on HBO. Why are you interested in rewatching it? What do you hope to learn? And what are you most interested to see as we move through this thing another time? Well, it's been a while since I've watched Deadwood before picking it up for this podcast. And I was, one, curious if it holds up, if it's as good as I remembered it being, especially after all the things that have come after on, you know, HBO has kind of made a, a cottage industry out of putting together really good TV. And it is was interesting to me to go back and see, like, is, does this still seem as good mm -hmm. as it did to me at the time? I'm also interested to see just from a kind of like a writing perspective, how did they manage to build this world? Because one of the things that I think is most appealing about Deadwood is that it creates such a full and complex and fully realized world that it's just kind of a pleasure to spend time in it as a viewer. And I think that's a tough thing to do. And I also just remembered it as being like some line by line, great writing, like great speeches kind of thing. And so it was interesting to me to be able to go back and look at it and figure out, kind of pick it apart and see how did they do this? Yeah. No, I agree. It's one of my favorite shows of all time. It might be my favorite series of all time. So I also want to see if it holds up some 15 years later after it was made. Obviously, TV has changed a lot since this show was on the air. Uh, so I want to see if it is as good as I remember it. I want to see, frankly, if any of it seems more problematic to me now than when I was watching it back in 2004. Uh, I want to talk about the landscape of television as Deadwood aired. I want to talk about the weird situation that led to Deadwood's cancellation after three seasons. I want to talk about the writing, as you said, and the characters and the performances, because, you know, you've got a huge sprawling ensemble cast in this thing and so many really good performances to spotlight. I hope that we get the opportunity to do that uh, as we move forward. And I think that you can make the case that Deadwood was a show that changed some things about TV, uh, you know, over the course of, of its run and then and then immediately after its cancellation. So Deadwood debuted on HBO on March 21st, 2004, in what was obviously a dramatically different television landscape than the one that we know today. Back in 2004, HBO had The Sopranos, it had The Wire, which was two years in, there was Oz and Six Feet Under, and basically at the time you had very few other cable networks that had stepped up and dared to challenge for the title of doing like so-called prestige TV at the time. Mad Men wouldn't come along on AMC until 2007, and then Breaking Bad in 2008. HBO was still sort of the universal landing spot for these big-budget, high-concept drama series, uh, which at the time was kind of like reimagining and changing what people thought was 
possible from television at the time. It's interesting to think about like when Deadwood debuted, this was still a world where Netflix existed, but Netflix didn't expand into streaming until 2007. Right. This so, was, you had to get your DVDs in the mail. Right. So if you wanted to binge watch something, you either had to get Netflix to send them to you in the mail three at a time, or you had to wait for the full DVD series collection to come out at the end of, of every season and then watch them that way. So most of us were still watching TV shows week to week. Like it was the damn stone age. I did not watch this that way. I watched it, uh, watching the DVDs one summer when I was unemployed. And I think I got the DVDs at blockbuster, went to the blockbuster video down the street, rented the DVDs, came back and watched them and basically did, uh, pretty much binge my way through most of it. And we start with the first scene here. The first scene of Deadwood is very, very memorable and also does not take place in Deadwood. Yeah, big ups to Deadwood for starting in Montana Territory. Montana Territory. 1877. It's 1876. Okay. May of 1876, where we begin, in Montana Territory. Now, the the things that kind of surprised me going back and rewatching it is that some, especially in the first episode, some of the stuff is painted more broadly, less subtly than I remembered. And it, some of that, I think, disappears a little bit after the first episode. Um, but one of the things that happens, we're sitting there in this sheriff's office, and by the way, it doesn't say exactly where in Montana territory it is, but based on the real life, real life Seth Bullock, who we'll talk about a little bit more later, uh, he was sheriff of Lewis and Clark County, uh, in Montana. Seems likely that we're looking at Helena. Okay. Helena, Montana, May 1876. The modern day state capital. That's right. And he has a prisoner who has stolen, has been arrested for stealing Byron Sampson's horse. And then in the process of apprehending that prisoner, there's a short gunfight. Bullock was wounded in the shoulder, but he takes the guy prisoner. And the guy realizes Bullock is going to Deadwood and says, you know, I was thinking ahead of Deadwood too. Is it true there's no law at all in Deadwood? Right. Which feels a little bit more forced now than maybe it did at the first time. Like, you're really trying to hammer, like, some early establishing dialogue kind of thing. Like, It's somewhat expository. It is. Um, and, you know, Bullock replies, it's true, it being on Indian land at all. And it's like, all right, so there are the two things that we're going to end up hammering a lot. But first, what happens in this scene is the lynch mob, led by the guy whose horse was stolen, shows up. And they want to. They want the prisoner, and Bullock initially is going to lead him out to the scaffolding where the uh, the hanging is supposed to take place. Already has the noose around his neck. The guy tells him, "Don't you try for that scaffold." He says, "Deal, you cocksucker, or whatever," and hangs him right there off the porch. Yeah, helps him with his fall. Helps him with his fall. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because the opening scene of Deadwood is, in my opinion, pretty extraordinary in its craft. Just because in a very short period of time, it tells us so much about our chief male protagonist, Seth Bullock, while at the same time setting the overall tone for the show, including cluing the audience in uh, to what we can expect from the rest of, of Deadwood. We get in that scene our first look at, at Timothy Oliphant as Seth Bullock, who we're going to talk about a lot on this first episode of the show, uh, especially we're going to do some listener mail questions here coming up in a minute. Uh, and one of those will will get us into talking about Timothy Oliphant's performance uh, as Seth Bullock, who is rocking the mustache and soul patch here. So, like, in a very brisk seven minutes of television here in the opening scene of De Deadwood, we get we learn that 
Seth Bullock is a lawman, that he's quick-witted and brave, that he's honest. He's ruthless enough to uh, break this guy's neck to help him with his fucking fall, as he says. Uh, and we also learn that he's headed to Deadwood to take up a hardware business with his best friend Saul Starr. So I think there's an implication there that something about being an officer of the law didn't necessarily sit well with Seth Bullock. Uh, we learned that his friend Saul Starr is willing to put his own life on the line to help Bullock. And we learn uh, that Saul Starr is Jewish, all of which become themes of the show as we move forward. We also get our first taste of the language. Yes. Which we're going to answer another listener mail question about in a couple of minutes. But clearly one of the things that sets Deadwood apart from like a stock Western television show is the lush, like unbelievably profane language that David Milch and the rest of the writing staff of, of Deadwood gives us. Uh, we, so we learn a lot about Seth Bullock in that scene and we get a, a taste for how things are going to go. And Byron Sampson, who appears on screen for not very long, but this dude goes through a real emotional journey. <laughs> yes, he does. Right? Cause he comes looking for revenge. And by the end of it, Bullock has kind of like taken control of the mob of men that he has brought with him to help lynch this, this uh, prisoner and by the end of it, like one of the guys steps forward, one of the guys who has come with Byron Sampson sort of betrays him and steps forward to be the one who passes along the prisoner's final words to his sister. Right. Which Bullock makes sure that he writes down, which yes. we get a, we find we get we start to learn more and more about Seth Bullock here. But like it's just sort of a uh, an early preview of the like the key to Seth Bullock's character. Here's an interesting thing. This is from an interview that Deadwood creator David Milch gave, uh, and I believe it was with Salon.com. And at one point, he's asked about Bullock and about that scene in particular. Because when you think about it, it is kind of a strange scene to begin with where, you know, they want to hang this guy or, you know, do something to him. They want to kill him. And Bullock is like, no, I will kill him in this very inconvenient way that requires it, like basically makes it worse right. than it has to be. And yet I'm going to insist upon it at personal peril. Because it's done under the color of law, right. which is, gets you into the Here's, uh, David Milch quote that I know you want to read. Right. And he says, Seth Bullock, I would say 90% of the characters are real. And Bullock, who was the first sheriff and who founded the first national park and became Theodore Roosevelt's best friend and in fact led the inauguration parade, was a guy with a murderous personality who embraced the idea of law as the only way he could control himself. The first scene of the first episode shows him hanging a guy rather than letting the mob hang him. That was a true story. And what he said was, if he's going to be hung, he's going to be hung under color of law. For Bullock, the color of law as a disinfectant of the kind of violence which was inside him, as an accommodation and protection of him from himself, was the essence of his personality. That's a highly adaptive trait in the kind of Darwinian environment that he found himself in, which is to say, he was every bit as violent as the next guy, but his violence expressed itself in an impulse to expressions of order. And so, that's how legal codes get developed. And see, this gets at really what... David Milch will tell you in interviews over and over again is kind of the the theme that Deadwood wants to explore is you take this chaotic environment where there's no law at all in Deadwood, as we are told in the first two minutes, and they have to organize themselves somehow. Everybody's there after the gold or after trying to make money off the people who are after the gold, which is basically what Saul Starr and Seth Bullock are doing. 
but they're living in some kind of a society and they're going to have to organize it somehow. So how does order arise out of some form of chaos like that? And here you do see Bullock insisting upon this expression of order, even though it's kind of absurd. Yeah. All right. Let's get into these listener mail questions. The first piece of listener mail on road agents comes to us from Peter Wald from San Francisco. He writes, jumping into Deadwood, the first thing that surprised me was the language. I was expecting to hear people speaking more like the dialogue in True Grit, where the vernacular was based on the idea that the only literature the characters would have been exposed to was the King James Bible. I was surprised to hear the characters in Deadwood using profanity that would be more at home in a Nate Diaz interview than in the Old West. Turns out, according to Wikipedia, the profanity in the show is deliberately anachronistic. The use of period-appropriate slang would have had the characters saying things like gall darn, so the producers of the show decided to use modern profanity in order to make the effect of the language more authentic. What do you guys think about this choice? Please do not varnish your opinions. (laughs) Uh, One of the things that was initially an obstacle to me getting into Deadwood was the language. And it does have kind of a Shakespearean quality to it, in a way, in that it feels very specific to the the thing. Like, it was a, a thing that I couldn't quite get past when I first kind of saw it, like flipping through channels or hearing people talk about how there's a show on HBO, Deadwood, that's really good. And I was just kind of like, ah, I don't know what's going on there. But then once I got past that obstacle, it became one of the things that I really enjoyed about the show because yeah. it creates its own language. Like... It reminds me of when we did our book club podcast on the Sisters Brothers by Patrick DeWitt. And he was saying in an interview that when you use this language from another time, it allows you to do things that you can't really do if you're writing in the modern vernacular. It allows you to have people make these speeches or these kind of poetic declarations that would seem unbelievably flowery if they were, you know, in just like a period piece set right, right now. But in one set at a completely different time with a completely different vernacular that's all its own, you can get away with some of that stuff. And Deadwood definitely makes great use of it. Yeah. Well, and the language ultimately becomes one of the great strengths of this show. The writing is is maybe the thing that makes Deadwood stand out the most. And clearly this was a choice born out of necessity because I don't think that you really could have characters running around in 2004 yet talking on a television show in a way that would be accurate to the late 1870s. I think that that would eventually become cloying to the audience. And I don't think that you would be able to have uh, the emotional impact that you want clearly much of this show to have. And I think that the choice to go with this ridiculous profanity and like over the top kind of Shakespearean style, Victorian style language only points out that Deadwood was kind of a swing from the heels home run idea and effort from the creator, David Milch, and his, his production team. Like, if this thing was going to fail, it was going to be a huge, unbelievable fireball that crashed into the earth immediately and caused an enormous amount of damage. And if it succeeded, it was going to be an enormous, big epic that everyone lauded and and thought was the greatest thing of all time and clearly it was the latter uh the the latter turned out to be the truth and like one of the things that that i try to keep in mind when we talk about deadwood is that like since deadwood came along in 2004 like it was 
considered a very big budget show. Every episode cost like $4.5 million. They built this entire town basically from scratch in the, uh, in the hills outside Los Angeles and filmed it all there. So like, as you said, it had this real immersive world building quality, which we weren't necessarily used to seeing from television at that time. And of course, you know, in the years since then, you have shows like Game of Thrones, which blows everything else out of the water in terms of budget and like using these huge sets. But like the language on Deadwood to me is an extension of that. You feel like you are cast into this world, which at the same is at the same time super recognizable because this is a Wild West cowboy show. And I think we all know kind of, you know, the tropes that come along with that. But at the same time, they're doing it in this way that felt at the time super fresh and like super uh, uh, revolutionary and kind of like uh, you were watching this whole new thing that was happening. And frankly, you put it on in 2019 and after these first two episodes, I was struck by the feeling like if this just debuted, if this was a new show in 2019 and I just watched these two episodes, I would still think that it was amazing. Yeah, well, and I think the language does a good job of signaling to you that this is not going to be the sanitized TV westerns of like the 50s. Right. And it, it does a good job of signaling that right off. Like, you know, the, the question here mentioned True Grit and it's, you can tell the difference. I would th- say the Coen Brothers remake of True Grit is definitely influenced by Deadwood in that sense. Like I heard a reviewer once say that in the original True Grit, you know, John Wayne played Rooster Cogburn in Foundation and a Girdle. And uh, uh, in the Coen Brothers remake, Jeff Bridges plays him in a way where you feel like you can smell him. And it feels like more authentic in a way, but also like not afraid to show the full complexity of the world. Uh, One early example of the language working well, a a section I have highlighted here from Ellsworth sitting down to the bar. The first time we see Ellsworth, the first time we see the inside of the gem saloon, Ellsworth sitting there talking to Al Swearingen. I may have fucked up my life, flatter and hammered shit, but I stand here before you today beholden to no human cocksucker and work in a paying fucking gold claim and not the U.S. government telling me I'm trespassing or the savage fucking red man or any of these other limber dick cocksuckers passing themselves off as prospectors had better try and stop me. To which Swearingen replies, they better not try and hear. <laughs> Next question this week comes from Andrew Millington who writes, So in the first two episodes of Deadwood, we learn the defining traits of most of the principal characters. We see so much. The fear and loyalty that Swearingen inspires. Wild Bill's world weariness and savvy. Farnham's skeevy awkwardness. God, I can't wait till we get to talk about E.B. Farnham's skeevy awkwardness. Damp palms running his family. Yeah. Alma's ambivalence toward her ultra dandy of a husband. The devoted best friends that are Saul Starr and Charlie Utter. Bullock and Doc Cochran's sense of duty, the Reverend's earnest verbosity, and Jane and Trixie's shaken confidence in the face of Al. Obviously, several of these characters grow and evolve throughout, but their core components are painted with a very broad brush here. My question is, as writers, how do you feel about this pointed style of introduction? Is there anything that you would have changed knowing what you know about the rest of the series? Uh, Like I said earlier, Deadwood has a huge ensemble cast and just a litany of unbelievably good performances. Uh, and it's really kind of like a feat in and of itself to have this many characters in an hour-long drama that all begin to feel like they have depth and their own stories and their own, uh, you know, uh, personal weight and and kind of like propulsiveness throughout this story. So like that, in my opinion, is a huge strength of this show. And like, for as speaking as a, a writer a hugely difficult task to have an army of characters, each of whom are going to get 
such a limited amount of screen time from week to week, and you have to make the time that they have carry so much weight in terms of their character development and like uh, bringing the audience into what's happening and who they are that like to do it for this many people is kind of incredible. Well, one of the things I felt like I noticed going back and watching episode one is it's kind of an everybody getting to do their stuff episode. And that can come off as it's really broadly drawn and everybody is maybe a little bit more an extreme version of the self they end up becoming as the series settles into itself. And I think that some, in some ways that makes sense because that first episode, right, you're trying to signal to the audience what you're dealing with here. And you're trying to separate the characters enough from one another that they don't all blend together, especially, you know, in a Western where everybody's dressed somewhat the same and they're all kind of dirty. So you're... You're trying to have them each stand out in some distinctive way. And sometimes it seems like in the first episode, you're doing it by going so big that even the people in the back row can see it. And then some of those characters, I think, will will be pulled back a little bit and a little more subtlety coming into it. Yeah. Uh, one example of a scene where I think that it takes it from what could be a really kind of cliche moment to a very specific to Deadwood kind of moment is the scene where... Uh, Johnny, the kind of the number, number three in the gem saloon, number, number two henchman, basically. He's the sidekick of the sidekick of the sidekick to Al Swearingen. Uh, he comes up basically being like, you know, this guy is saying that, uh, they organize a search party to go out there and look for the, this, the squarehead family that might've been massacred by Indians. And Al is upset because, hey, you start spreading that story around. People aren't going to be gambling and whoring. My action is going to be fucked up and people are going to be worried. And maybe they go out and join the search party. And the next thing you know, my place is empty. And he punches Johnny in the face. As soon as he hears that Johnny has not stopped this guy from spreading the story before he told it to uh, three or four other people. And it's kind of an over-the-top moment at, at first, like where it seems like Al just like is the violent tyrant of the gem saloon. And then after he storms out of the room, Dan, the the number one henchman, looks down at him and says, he's got a lot on his mind, Johnny. And it's a great moment to kind of like show you and without telling you just just by demonstrating what the dynamic is there and that it is like a, you know, boss employee working relationship in which sometimes you'll get punched. Yeah. And then later. There's the scene where Johnny comes up to Al right. and is like, it's okay, Al, I know you got a lot on my mind. Well, and Al mimes punching him again, like in a in a kind of friendly mock way. And Johnny, you know, he does not offer an actual apology, but Johnny acts as if he has. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is a great moment for yes. Ian McShane as Al Swearingen, who we will end up talking about a ton on this show because it's one of the true standout performances, obviously, on Deadwood. And I guess before we move on, I just want to say that like, for as over the top a character as Al Swearingen is, Ian McShane, clearly he does a lot of just straight up power acting in this thing. And he gets into the first great soliloquy of Deadwood immediately after he punches Johnny. He goes downstairs and like talks everyone in the bar into staying there and drinking and, and, and you know, uh, whoring. More of a monologue, really. There's a bunch of people around it, but all right. Okay. We'll just, that's where we're at, I guess. Uh so like Ian McShane delivers on these kind of like big over the top moments, but he also does so much just kind of with his eyes. Yeah. Like there are a lot of scenes where, you know, he is, he's not only doing these like broad stroke 
big big time gestures, he's also doing these really subtle things that end up telling you a lot about who he is as a character. Well, in the in that monologue, he goes quickly too from like you know telling everybody what they ought to do to to think about the Indian threat and. You know, God bless those poor souls out on the road and, you know, think about it. Also, pussy's half price for yeah. the next 20 minutes. All right, let's answer this question from the Great Dane, and I think that it will get us into a conversation that will probably take up most of the rest of this episode. He writes, What's the deal with Timothy Oliphant? Admittedly, I've only had a chance to watch episode one, so maybe it gets better in episode two, but the characterization of someone in the late 1800s prospecting town seems very forced, at least in comparison to everyone around him. I can't put my finger on exactly what is wrong, but he comes off as a caricature of what Bullock is supposed to be, while the other actors seem to fall right into place. Okay, so that's let's, a fair observation. Let's talk about the performance of Timothy Oliphant here, who, like, this is sort of like his first big breakout performance yeah and in some ways i feel like he falls victim to a thing that often happen, happens to these like leading actors in a show like deadwood or like the wire or mad men where you see timothy oliphant as seth bullock you see john ham as don draper you see uh the uh, dominic Cruz, not dominic Cruz, uh dominic the guy who plays uh, jimmy mcnulty in the wire yes uh and they seem Dominic West. Yeah, Dominic West. That's right. Uh, they they rise to these incredible heights as these characters, and then when the show goes off the air, they never really are able to follow up on that. Now, obviously, Timothy Oliphant scores Justified at some point, where he is essentially playing a modern day version of Seth Bullock. But like, he's one of these actors that becomes very well known as a leading man on this show, and then kind of. Uh, you know, falls off, I guess we could say a little bit well, from, from time to time. And I would say on my first watch of Deadwood, I didn't love Timothy Oliphant as Seth Bullock. Like he wasn't one of my favorite characters. I think you get a lot more easily accessible stuff from Al Swearingen. Yes. Uh, and he's the guy, he's the character that's going to suck, suck up a lot of the ox- oxygen in the room here. Seth Bullock is, he's, this is a, a weird performance from Timothy Oliphant. And sometimes it does feel a little bit forced and a little bit over the top. But now that I've watched Deadwood three times, I kind of have made my peace with it. And indeed, I've become to kind of celebrate it as part of the character of Seth Bullock. And it's possible that I'm just being an apologist here and that I'm being a little Pollyanna-ish about Timothy Oliphant's uh, performance as Seth Bullock. But I feel like that quote that you read earlier from David Milch it gets you to the heart of who Seth Bullock is. Right. And frankly, who Seth Bullock is is a really weird dude. Yes. And he is kind of constantly at war with himself to keep this incredible violence that he knows he possesses in check. And indeed, like you said, the theme of Deadwood being how to bring order out of chaos, I feel like that applies specifically to Seth Bullock as well. Yeah. Well, one of the things I think that made me feel the same way the Great Dane does uh, upon the first viewing was because the way the show is set up, you know, the first scene is all about Bullock. You're, You're following Bullock into Deadwood. And it's like, okay, he's the clearly the conventionally handsome leading man. And so it felt like, okay, the show wants me to care about this guy. But the more into the show I get, the more I care about all the other people more. Right. I think he's the least interesting character. And I also did not care for the portrayal of him because it felt like the way Timothy, Timothy Oliphant played him was as if Bullock only had two emotions. Rage and barely suppressed rage. Right. And that was it. And it, it, that made it seem flat. Made him seem flat as a character. But I, 
I felt the same way that not only rewatching it, but then doing some of this reading and, and about who the real Seth Bullock was and uh, some of David Milch's comments about what he wanted Seth Bullock to be in the show. It makes him seem a little more interesting to me in retrospect. Here's another quote. This is from a story in The New Yorker that was about David Milch uh, and also about Deadwood. Uh, but this is him talking about the Bullock character. Mark Twain used to say that when he would formulate a character, he would suddenly realize he was meeting them for the second time. He met them the first time on the river. These were all characters who would have to be what they were described as being. So Bullock, as an exemplar of the law, would have had to be a particular kind of person. Psychologists talk about the binding of one thing to another, taking a feeling that is absolutely unacceptable and suppressing it by binding it to another feeling which is completely acceptable. It's what drug addicts do when they take a drug and superimpose it on a feeling that they don't want to have. For Bullock, the law was a binding against his impulse to violence. In particular, I suspect, against his old man. Now... Let's talk for a minute about who the real Seth Bullock was, uh, okay. because he was an important figure, not just in Deadwood and kind of the American West at the time. He had been an important person at a young age in the Montana Territory. Uh, he was uh, elected to you know its early version of the state legislature in you know before Montana was a state. Uh, you know, in addition to being the sheriff of Lewis and Clark County, he also uh, at like the age of twenty two in this kind of proto-state legislature uh, was instrumental in making sure Yellowstone National Park was set aside and became a national park. He was It was the, the Territorial Senate of Montana, and he was the one who introduced that resolution. Um, but then he decides he is not really making enough money as a sheriff in Montana, wants to go open a hardware business. And you got to note that it's kind of a, a certain kind of person who will strike off, like from an already kind of frontier place in Montana, 1876, to Deadwood, which has just very recently sprung up. Because one of the things you have to know about, like, 1876 is the year of, like, the American government's war with the Sioux. Uh, you know, we start in May 1876. The next month, I believe, is when Custer is killed at the Battle of Little Bighorn. Everybody knows Custer was killed at the Battle of Little Bighorn. This podcast presupposes this. Maybe you didn't know that. Did you notice early on in this show, Al Swearingen throws some shade at Custer? Yeah, Custer gets some shade thrown at him throughout. Yeah. Uh, we will la later learn about Calamity Jane's history with Custer. Uh, but this... Deserved, let's say. Yes. Deserved shade. Now, And so what had been going on was the federal government had signed a couple different treaties with the, the Indian tribes in the area, the, the, the Sioux, uh, the Cheyenne... And at first, uh, you know, there, there were two Fort Laramie treaties. We, heard, we hear a reference to the Fort Laramie Treaty from uh, Merrick, the newspaper man, who is predicting what he thinks is going to happen. And several times in the first episode, we're introduced to these dueling anxieties that people have. You know, it's right there in Ellsworth's speech. The two fears are the Indians, who, on whose land we are right now, totally illegally, and the government, that the government might come in here at any moment and say... You know, we signed this treaty with these people, and you guys are in violation of it just by being here. So we have to kick you off just to stay uh, within what we agreed to. And the first treaty kind of tried to regulate how the tribes would interact with each other, trying to like create these boundaries so that they did not fight with each other all the time. And by the time you get around to the second one in the 1860s, it's a lot more aggressive. But one of the things that it did was it gave the Black Hills over to the Sioux. That was their territory. But then, in like 1875, 
a party led by Custer himself finds gold in the Black Hills. And this is one of like the last major gold rushes in North America. All the other gold rushes, you know, it happened much earlier in, in, in California and then the, in Montana. And a lot of the people who would have been coming to Deadwood, you know, we think of people coming from east, like going west to remake their lives and stuff. A lot of the people who came to Deadwood here would have been coming from other mining towns in the west, like Montana and in Colorado, places like that. But they were all there completely illegally. It was the Sioux's land until we realized there was gold on it. I mean, kind of some stuff that you can still see the United States government doing. In fact, in the during the whole Standing Rock protests about the pipeline uh, in you know modern day South Dakota, the Fort Laramie Treaty was one of the things they referenced. Basically, like this has happened before, and all these people rush in there to try to get this gold before it's gone because they know how gold rushes have gone. They don't know how many more gold rushes there are going to be. This is like the last big one. And they don't know yet at this point that we join, you know, their lives. They don't know if this is a whole bunch of gold under the ground that you can have actual mines like dug into the earth for, or if it's just like you're panning gold in the rivers and it's going to be over pretty quickly. And so that's why you, you know, you go through the thoroughfare the first time and you see these tents. People aren't even quite sure is this going to be a real town? Is this worth building something around? Right. And so that's the environment that everybody's going towards. And, you know, Seth Bullock and his partner being like realizing we're not going to go there so much for mining. Although the real life Seth Bullock did eventually own, you know, partially own a mine. We're going there to try to sell goods to the people who are coming to mine. Yeah. Much like they say in the Sisters Brothers, the money is not to be made from the, the gold in the rivers, but from the men working the rivers. Yeah. And that's what they're trying to do here. And when Bullock and Starr first open up their hardware store, like one of the things that they have to get across to the potential customers are, hey, we're going to be here. Yeah. Because there was a transient era at the time. So people are like, if I buy this pair of boots and they don't work out, or is your tent full of hardware stuff even going to be here when I come back? Let's talk a little bit more about this Timothy Oliphant performance as Seth Bullock. Because like we talked about earlier, we do get all of these sort of like broad stroke, big picture uh implications as to what Bullock's character are character is in the first, you know, seven minutes of the show. We see him shortly thereafter arrive in Deadwood and exchange a pregnant glance with Wild Bill Hickok, where we kind of realize as audience members, really over the course of these two episodes, like, okay, Seth Bullock and Wild Bill are guys who are essentially cut from the same cloth, but have chosen different paths in life. But you also get these these somewhat more nuanced moments from Timothy Oliphant that I, I do want to talk about a little bit. And one of them is in the scene where Bullock and Saul Starr open their hardware store. Yes. Because they open the doors and they have to go outside and give the pitch to the audience. And Bullock, who's this guy capable of these of this great bravery and this like uh extreme confidence in situations where he is confronted by groups of of armed men who might just kill him is a lot less comfortable in this situation where he needs to like give his sales pitch to this crowd. Right. He even has to be talked into doing the sales pitch in the first place there. He's standing there looking out of the flap in the tent and Saul star tells him, we're not selling them anything that they don't need or want. You know, we we're doing this because they need this stuff and we are charging a markup on it because we brought it here through at, at personal risk and so, like, basically, we're not doing anything unethical. Don't feel ashamed to step out there and really sell it. Even before then, there's an indication that he won't be a great 
uh, merchant because there's that scene where they're unloading the wagon and the guy is yelling at them about them doing it too slowly and blocking his spot. And he is right there on the verge of getting into a fight with the guy and beating him up. Keep running right your mouth and see what happens yes. is basically what and, he says to the guy. And Saul Star steps up and gives the guy, you know, like a, a, a chamber pot or something um, and placates him that way. And then afterwards, Saul Star tells him, my father's last words just before he passed away there in Vienna, Saul, those who can't abide a goddamn fool get slowed down some at retail. To which Bullock replies, I've got to put a book together of your old man's deathbed sayings. But basically, Saul Starr has the temperament to do this. And Bullock, while he has the temperament for this other thing, and he's trying to kind of be something he's not, he's not really great at this. Right. And Saul Starr is in many ways Seth Bullock's protector in certain ways. Like he he will clean up his messes or, uh, you know, try to avoid his messes in more of a social way. And then Bullock obviously is the guy who's a little handy with the steel if you know what I mean, earning your keep. Uh, So two things happen in this scene where they have to give the pitch outside the tent of the hardware store. One is that we see that Seth Bullock is is uncomfortable in this role, trying to speak to the crowd, and is perhaps, as you said, not going to be a great merchant. The second thing that happens immediately after is that he has to run off a swindler. So this guy who's found, allegedly found a $5 gold piece in a bar of soap that he bought at a competing hardware store, like a competing dry goods store, uh, is out there, basically trying to to give this pitch to the audience and Bullock just walks up to him and is like, take your game elsewhere. And it's another moment where you can see in the face of Timothy Oliphant that this is a dude who will just kill you. Yeah. And that this is a situation he's more comfortable in. Absolutely. Well, and also, you know, one of the things that you see here that I think is interesting in, in terms of like the broader themes of Deadwood is Trying to operate a business in a place where there is no law whatsoever, other than what you can physically yourself enforce and impose. And, you know, the, them trying to convince people like, hey, we're not going anywhere, we'll actually be here, all that kind of stuff. And then there's the moment where they they go a couple times to try to buy their lot outright from Al Swearingen rather than renting it. Right. And, you know, there's a great, that great first reaction where they, they meet after... You know, this is after Bullock has participated with Wild Bill in shooting one of the road agents. Uh, and Al meets them in the gym saloon. He's getting a bottle of whiskey to pour them a drink. And he makes a show putting his hands up and saying, I'm turning around real slow. You know, basically like making a, a joke about how Bullock has just killed a man in the street. And him saying like, you know, I just heard that uh, you're a man I wouldn't want confusing my intentions. And Bullock replies with this, like, angry smile that will become one of his trademarks throughout this series. Who said that? I'd like to ask him what he meant. And, you know, you see, like, that in those moments where the rage just getting ready to boil over. And I I guess it seems like maybe that's the thing they lean on a little too much here. Um, But there's also then later when they try to buy it and he's like, okay, Saul has my proxy. Like, I can't clearly sit here and have a conversation with you without flipping out and losing my shit. Yeah. Saul can, so he's going to handle the sale part of the deal. And he's trying to allay Swearingen's fears that basically, what if I sell to these guys? And their hardware store becomes a saloon in a whorehouse, just like I have a saloon in a whorehouse. And they've got this tough guy along with Wild Bill Hickok, who they seem to be suddenly very close with, and him saying that basically, like, I want to know if you have unnamed partners. And Saul is trying to say, hey, it's none of that going on. We're just a hardware store, and we just met Bill Hickok. And Swearinger replies, so you say, 
But a camp like this, Saul, no law or enforceable contracts, you want to watch a man a little while till you see what his word counts for. And it gives you a sense, like, it's hard for us to even fathom, like, you're all in this place, you're all there illegally, stealing resources that the government has given to somebody else. You don't know how long you're going to be able to get away with it. You don't know if, if law is going to be enforced upon you. You're living in this chaotic vacuum. How do you do things like sales and any kind of, like normally conducted business between people when for all we know, you know, we might agree on a price, but then you just kill me and take my stuff and who's going to do anything about it. Yeah. And the the second confrontation between Swearingen and Bullock is like their first real big climax moment where we as the audience are like, this is going to be a problem. Right. These two guys are not going to be able to coexist in this town together without significant strife. And, uh, two things happen in those two confrontations. Number one, as you mentioned, I would just like to give a nod, a positive nod to the performance of, of Timothy Oliphant, which I think we're going to give mixed reviews to throughout the, the, the life of this show. But also like that, that smile that you talked about where he says, I'd like to know who said that. Like that's a bit of nuance that I feel like yes. I need to recognize that Timothy Oliphant actually, you know, brings some depth to this Bullock character that otherwise might have been lost. So you get that and you also get in the second confrontation, Al Swearingen saying that his counteroffer to Bullock's counteroffer is go fuck yourself. <laughs> yes. And then they stare at each other for what seems like six hours. Right. Trixie tries to intervene with an offer of a bath and blowjob just to defuse the situation. Right. Uh, so you really get the sense that that things are going to ramp up between these two characters. And I do want to talk in a few minutes before we run out of time about how business picks up for Al Swearingen down the second half of the second episode of this show, Deep Water, because he just orders a, a bunch of murders in like yes. the last 20 minutes of the second He's episode. He's got schemes and then schemes to cover up the schemes and then tries to send somebody out, uh, actually sending Nick Offerman out, which I did not recognize him in that role, but you did. Uh, he tries to send him out to kill Wild Bill Hickok. Right. And clearly, like, he knows more about the world behind the world of the camp yeah. than most other people do. So two big picture plot point things happen to set that up. Number one, we get to see the New York dude, Brom Garrett, and his wife, Alma Garrett, who have come to Deadwood uh, on a misguided adventure where he is going to try to pan for gold, and she is frankly just going to be on that laudanum. Yes. Uh, which seems delightful, Yeah, can by I the get way. some of that laudanum? Seems like she's just having a great time. I think I would enjoy that. All you got to do is put it in your water yeah. with a dropper, and then you're on cloud nine. Uh, so that happens. We meet the New York dude. We find out that uh, things are not going well with the gold claim up right. in the hills. We see Al Swearingen run some game on on Brom Garrett uh, in in like a fairly clever way where there's two or three different layers of uh, hustle going right. on. Uh, also, little nod to the acting performance of uh, who, who's Alma Garrett. Who's who? Do you know oh, Molly Parker? Yes. Uh, there's that scene where when he come when Brom Garrett, the New York dude, comes up to tell her basically how this sale went down, and he's very excited about it. He thinks he's really nailed it by buying this gold claim at twenty thousand dollars. And we see her even whacked out on laudanum as he is telling her this, she immediately puts together what has happened. And you don't need much. It's very subtle. Like you see it on her face as he is telling her the story. 
you see that she understands that he's been conned. And he says, you know, when I, when I tell you all the details about this, you're going to have material for a really fascinating article that you can write about it. And she says something along the lines of, the details are already becoming clear to me. Right, I'm like, already composing it in my head. Or yes, like yeah, that. and it's like you, you see already she's smarter than he is, and it's done very well and very subtly. Yeah, uh, and the second thing that happens is the poor squareheads, the Scandinavian family, Gets murdered on the road to Spearfish. That's right. Allegedly by a group of Native Americans, but we find out in short order that it was actually conducted by road agents. Road agents. And that those two events, the the scamming of Brom Garrett and the ultimately worthlessness of his gold claim, and this mass murder committed on the road to Spearfish essentially touch off Deadwood. That's what we're gonna those those are your inciting incidents for for the beginning of this show. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about Al Swearingen. Okay, we certainly don't want to give short shrift as far as these as far as these first two episodes are concerned. Because while I would say episode one and episode two of this show are largely a showcase for the Seth Bullock character, which I think is perfectly understandable since he, he, that's your intended protagonist here. So using the first two episodes of the show to establish who he is 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 pretty routine. Ian McShane's performance as Al Swearingen really brings him to the forefront here, especially during the second half of episode two. We already see in the pilot uh, what the, who this guy is and what he's capable of, uh, particularly his, his abusive relationship with Trixie, which I think we will talk about at great depth as we move on through this show. But then in the, in the second half of episode two, he basically gins up, Tom Mason played, as you noted, with some full frontal nudity mm-hmm. by future Parks and Rec star Nick Offerman, stand-up, stand-up comedian. He, he branded that snatch. Uh, he has this run-in with Seth Bullock. He tries to send Tom Mason out to kill Wild Bill Hickok. He tries to send uh, Big Dan Doherty out to kill a child. Well, he does uh, actually succeeds in sending Big Dan Doherty out earlier to kill... Uh, Oh, Tim Driscoll, Tim Driscoll, the Irishman, who has That's a little right. Conor McGregor in him. Yes, in that he elevates everything to the level of ethnic uh, blood feud, especially well, in his conversation with Al Swearingen, which maybe doesn't go that well for him. Well, yeah, especially after he has sold this gold claim and he's supposed to be entitled to a cut of the the proceeds, and then ends up basically just getting his debt to the house knocked off a little bit and like he can go gamble and, and have sex with one of the prostitutes and that's about it. That's all he gets out of it. Um, but yeah, first Dan kills him. Then Dan is sent out to kill the little girl kind of under mild protest. Yeah. Big Dan Doherty, by the way, probably my favorite Deadwood character. I have to say, uh, even though there's a, like an embarrassment of, of riches to choose from here. So we really start to see Al Swearingen, and then you get what is, I think, close to the final scene of episode two, where Al kills Persimmon Phil in the office. And it is another terrific moment from Ian McShane and what is going to be like a tour de force, frankly, in terrific moments for a character uh, throughout this series. Uh, he brings Persimmon Phil into his office in a situation where even though we are less than two hours into this show, every damn buddy watching knows He's not coming out of there. President Phil is in danger. Uh, and this uh, this arises from Big Dan Doherty and Doc Cochran, like coming to the gem saloon to basically 
try to talk their way out of having the little girl murdered. They say that Calamity Jane has absconded with her. Right. And so Al Swearingen immediately goes from plan A, which is kill the little girl, to plan B, which is kill everybody else. Yes. So he brings Persimmon Phil into his into his his office and is sort of like leading him on this conversation, opens his safe, ultimately like sticks a knife in him and and kills him. And then and so by two episodes in, we get this view of Al Swearingen as the for lack of a better term, like organized crime boss of of Deadwood, who is himself not only capable of this terrible violence, but I think due to the performance of Ian McShane, and this certainly comes to the fore later on in the show, but like uh, endowed with this depth and like kind of world weariness and ultimately kind of like personal pain that is sort of written all over the guy's face from time to time uh, in a way that saves Al Swearingen from being kind of like a cliched evil mob boss type character. Yeah. And now, and through it all, we also have the developing simmering subplot of wild bill Hickok. Yeah. Who was ostensibly there to participate in the, the gold rush. But then once he gets there, really just wants to drink and gamble really just wants to play poker. Uh, and Charlie utter his friend trying to direct him in a more profitable path only to be stymied again and again. And there's the great scene where Solstar and Seth Bullock walking down the street, they notice Charlie Utter peeing against the side of a building. And he looks over at Bullock and he asks him, what's your secret? And he, Bullock says, what do you mean? And he says, you've got some of Bill's qualities, but then you've got something he's missing. Get along in the world, turn a dollar, look out for yourself. He don't know how to do it. See what I'm saying? I'd like to know your secret and then I could tell it to Bill. And Bullock says, I don't have any, I don't know any secrets. Well, don't tell me if you don't want to. Find occasion and tell him yourself. He likes you. Just don't wait too long. Yeah. Uh, both Dayton Callie's performance as Charlie Utter and Robin Weigert's performance as Calamity Jane are among the best in Deadwood also. I feel like this whole series is going to be me saying how awesome somebody's performance was, how it's one of the standout performances in the entire show. But like you really, you really get the sense of the long suffering Charlie Utter here, yes. like trying to be Wild Bill Hickok's best friend and like set him up with uh, uh, basically like a performance gig at a yeah. at a saloon where like he gets paid just got to a be residency. there. Yeah, yeah, a residency, so to speak. Uh, at Tom Nuttall's saloon. And that obviously doesn't work out. Uh, Wild Bill is not into it. And, and also, you know, while being a perfectly reasonable plan on the part of Charlie Utter also doesn't seem to be like the right one. As far as I'm concerned, I don't know if that's necessarily the job you want to get wild bill into, but maybe you're dealing with limited options. Yeah. Well, and you know, as far as an acting performance by the, the Charlie Utter guy, uh, there's a great moment after calamity. Jane has that just heart wrenching scene where, you know, she's been kind of real outspokenly tough and brash. And then Al Swearingen comes and she thinks that he's, going to you know kill or possibly kill and rape the girl and she kind of regresses to like a frightened childhood moment in the face of that and then hates herself for it afterwards and is really drunk and angry and they have that moment where charlie edder stops her from charging into the gem saloon to give herself a second chance because he knows you know you're not going to be coming back out even if you do succeed in killing him and then she bursts into tears. And you can imagine what it must have looked like on the page because she bursts into tears and his line is, oh, what is this? And that could, you know, you could play that a couple different ways. Uh, and the way he plays it is with like surprise, but also tenderness where he says, oh, what is this? 
and then hugs her. And it's just done so perfectly in that moment where you get a sense like this, their relationship has not prepared either one of them for that, that interaction right then. Right. And then she sort of like straightens up, readjusts her buckskin outfit yes. and just walks away <laughs> without saying anything more. Do you want to do this dramatic reading that you've okay. set up for us as yes. a as a way to begin closing out the show here? I feel like the first two episodes of Deadwood get a lot of stuff uh, in motion, like you're supposed to do at the start of a show. A lot of balls up in the air, uh, a lot of interesting ha- things happening, a lot of motherfuckers getting killed. Uh, so Did- we're off and running here into what will be... Next week's show for episode three and episode four. That's right. Deadwood. Well, first, uh, a, a segment that we plan to uh, possibly repeat here weekly, dramatic readings. Now, for this reading, this is the scene where uh, the doc has ascertained that the girl is probably going to make a recovery, uh, the little one, as she is known throughout. And he also, though, is keeping this really close to the vest. And we see Bullock coming down to the doctor's office while he, the doc has enlisted Calamity Jane to help him care for the girl, and she, she turns out to actually be good at it. And we, they see Bullock coming down the alleyway, and the doc tells her, basically, don't let on to him that she's going to make a recovery. Like, let's keep telling everybody that she's probably going to die. Uh, and so, you know, he, he tells... Bullock, I'm not optimistic about her chances and everything. Calamity Jane just kind of has to stand there and keep help keep the secret. And then Bullock walks away. Now, Chad will be playing the role of Calamity Jane. I will be <clears throat> Doc Cochran. You're wrong not to trust him. He formed the party that found this little one among all the dead of her family. Didn't he? And didn't he shoot a man he suspected in the murders? And if I confided, wouldn't he circulate my optimism? Wouldn't he say, when that little one speaks, you'll find out I was right. Not the Sioux killed her family, but road agents? And suppose it was road agents, and they hear his talk. Where does the little one stand then? You got a dark turn of mind. I see as much misery out of them moving to justify themselves as them that set out to do harm. Boom. Did you see me method acting a little bit there? Yeah. you Trying to really get into the role. You really channeled Calamity Jane. Put put the uh, podcast on pause and went and got super drunk before I did that. So there we go. All right, Ben, two other things we want to do before we close out this week's show. Number one, the body count. Body count. This might turn out to be an impossible task. It's harder than I thought it was going to be. But we want to, if we can, keep a running tally of everybody who gets killed in Deadwood so we come up with, you know, some statistics by the end of uh, by the end of the show. Surprisingly bloody pilot. And then episode two finishes with the bang, but, you know, a much less violent in many ways episode. Uh, in episode one, uh, you get one killed by hanging one guy shot in the head by Trixie and then fed to Mr. Wu's pigs. You get four square heads killed and dismembered on the road to Spearfish. That happens off screen, but still. You get Tim Driscoll knifed by Big Dan and Ned Mason uh, killed by Bill and Seth. So a total of eight deaths in the pilot of Deadwood. Episode two, you only get two deaths, but you get Tom Mason killed by Wild Bill Hickok and you get Persimmon Phil knifed by Al Swearingen. Series total, 10 deaths through two episodes. That's an average of five per episode. Without further ado, we would like to break out our uh, mustache rankings for the first two episodes of Deadwood. Basically, we want to pick who our favorite mustaches were in the first two episodes. I'm going to make a little bit of a situational pick here, Ben, because I want to highlight the waxed and pointed mustache of the New York dude, Brom Garrett, which he is 
constantly fiddling with. Yes, especially when he's sipping whiskey and he has to constantly keep running his finger along it. It's not one of the more ostentatious mustaches of Deadwood, but I feel like it really gets the uh, the character development across as the uh, New York dude probably spends a lot of time with the waxes and the powders uh, preparing himself for the day. I also wanted to spotlight Brom Garrett's mustache since we're not going to get a lot of opportunity to continue to speak about Brom Garrett's mustache as the season goes on. Well, spoiler on, alert. On the, on the note, the mustache I would like to highlight belongs to Wild Bill Hickok. Okay, which is a great one. Yes, it is. It's got a real bushy handlebar kind of thing going on. It seems somehow to play some role in his gravelly voice. I know that can't be true, but that's how it feels. It feels at times like the mustache is doing the talking. Uh, and again, we got to appreciate that mustache while we can. Sartorially speaking, there's a lot of good stuff going on with Wild Bill Hickok. Yes. Keith Carradine's performance as Wild Bill Hickok, which I think... We'll probably uh, talk about more on the next episode of Road Agents, but like he's got that cloak. He's wearing like a patterned cloak, which uh, sets him apart, I suppose, as a gunfighter type in the world of Deadwood. He's got a really like almost uh, like fancy little tie kind of thing at times. You know what I noticed? Uh, what, what was really obvious to me in this watching of Deadwood that maybe I had not picked up on before was Charlie Utter wearing a tie with with basically no shirt under it like we're basically wearing a tie yes. over a t-shirt yeah which like he's a damn rodeo clown or something <laughs> so that was one of the things i noticed on this on this rewatch of deadwood anyway that's gonna do it for the first episode of road agents we hope you enjoyed it uh hit us up by the way to tell us your thoughts anything you think we could do different anything you think we could do better send us some listener mail via the uh website comainevent.com and uh we're going to carry on with this thing, and, and uh, we want your feelings heard and felt. And if you enjoyed it, this free sample, and you feel like you want to get down with this in the future, don't forget to join the Patreon at the top tier so that you can hear future installments of Road Agents before it disappears from your life. That's right. Future episodes of Road Agents will be available to the $10 level patrons over at the, uh, at the Co-Main Event Podcast's website. It's patreon.com slash co-main event. Guess I'm going to leave us with the words of Ellsworth here before we sign off. Just something that you all can carry with you for the rest of your day. Fuck us all anyway, for the limber dick cocksuckers we are. Indeed. See you next week. Indeed.